0: So, I don't like today's sermon. (laughs) And you're not going to like it either. Uh, But it's stuff... I wouldn't preach if Jesus didn't say it, but He does. And He says stuff like this repeatedly. It's stuff that's going to make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But I think it is the missing piece in why churches, especially churches in America, are not making disciples of Jesus. We're concluding our series, Jesus 101, which has been a series on making disciples, becoming a disciple of Jesus. And the reason we're trying to be as clear as possible about what this is, the reason we're talking about it in Bible classes and in 242 groups, is because often in church, what happens is church uses the language of discipleship to make people feel guilty for something they're not doing. But they... They use it as if it's just that particular thing. When in fact, what it is, is what Jesus did with the twelve disciples. Which is life on life. He shared a lot of life with them. I mean, He lived with them. He went camping and hiking and all kinds of conversations. And He taught them how to view the world the way He viewed it. And that required a lot of time, a lot of conversations, a lot of conflict. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Because Jesus is going to tell them how to view money, how to, view, how to treat people, how to treat women. All these different kind of things. And over and over again, conflict rises to the top. Jesus challenges them in ways that I don't see a lot of churches in America challenging each other. But without this challenge, change is impossible. But in Jesus... Change is the goal. To be transformed is the goal. And come on, if cauliflower can become pizza, God can change you too, right? So this is the missing piece. It is to be changed by Jesus, by God, primarily through the Spirit of God in the people of God. So the reason conflict is hard, you know, I'm okay at conflict. I don't like it. It drains me emotionally. And one of the challenges with dealing with what Jesus says today is that I don't like it, and I especially don't like it in the moment. Because generally speaking, I think I'm all right. I can see your problems, sure. But I think I'm all right. And when somebody points out a way that I'm not all right, it gets really, really difficult. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're just going to read the first verse at first. Jesus is concluding His Sermon on the Mount, a manifesto, manifesto about life and the Kingdom of God that is available to every human being who follows Him, who has the Spirit of God. And He starts this section by saying, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, there's two people that are bothered by this. Uh, some that... Uh, want to judge and some that want to use this to keep people from having conversations that are hard in their life this is one of the more famous things Jesus said and if you're one of those people who uh, are bothered by this because y- you look at the world, I mean I get it look at the world, it's a dumpster fire don't judge Jesus, are you kidding? do you realize what kind of trash, people are? what kind of dumpster fire people are making out of their lives and the lives of people around them we got drug dealers and drug users. We got corrupt bankers and judges and husbands cheating on their wives and wives stepping out on their husbands. We got child abusers and spouse abusers and elderly abusers. We got babies having babies and kids having kids. Don't judge Jesus? Seriously? The world is broken. It's going to hell. Why wouldn't we judge? But I bet you see the other side of this too. Because one of the things that's bothered me the most about church in my lifetime of growing up in church is that church is supposed to be the body of Christ. We're supposed to reflect what God is like in the world. And yet, the people who were the most drawn to Jesus are not that drawn to church. Right? There's a great book. I highly recommend this book. It's by Philip Gansy. It's called What's So Amazing About Grace. I read it in college. life changing. And he opens up that book. He lives in Chicago. His wife is a social worker. He opens up that book by talking about his wife's experience as a social worker with a a woman who was um, deeply addicted to drugs. She had turned to prostitution to fund her habit. Her habit had gotten so bad that she had allowed things to happen to her two-year-old daughter. That should never happen to any little kid. To fund her addiction. And at one point, the social worker, Philip Yancey's wife, says to her, have you ever considered church? And she says, church? I already feel bad enough about myself. Why would I go there? Which is so hard. But I understand where she's coming from. And maybe you've had church experiences like that too. Which raises the question... How could Jesus who never condoned sin? How could Jesus always be so attractive to people enmeshed in sin? People who were nothing like Jesus really liked Jesus. And I don't I love the church. We're not that great at this. We we reflect often the world of ungrace that we live in. And it's strange because the grace of God is what brought you here today. You're here today because you're aware that there's something fundamentally broken in your life. And that God's grace can heal it, can restore it. But Jesus, who says do not judge, doesn't stop talking there. Because Jesus, who is grace and truth with a body, keeps on talking. And here's what He says. We're going to read all of His little section here in Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Some of you have experienced this truth. This is true. How you judge and evaluate other people is always going to come back to you. So how do you want to be judged in your moments? Use that way. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? Like we talked about last week, Jesus is here again telling us, if you want to be my follower, you have to be self-aware. You have to be brutally honest with yourself. In the language of recovery groups, take a fearless moral inventory. You've got a plank in your eye. You're not the right person to point this out to them. Until. It's not like, so don't do it. Deal with the plank so that you may see clearly. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. And then Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Because if you do, they may trample them under their feet, turn around and tear you to pieces. Jesus is actually not just saying don't judge. He's telling us how to do this well. How to live in the community of God's people well. Because honestly, we all kind of want to know how we're doing. I, I read about this phenomenon on the social media uh, site Reddit. That there's dozens of these Reddit subreddits about upload people uploading their pictures and asking random strangers on the internet to evaluate them, to judge them. It's stuff like, judge my face. And so preparing for the sermon, I was like, alright, let's see what this is. And it is what you'd expect. It's the internet. And people are posting pictures of themselves asking for feedback. And it's stuff like, you've been beaten to death with the ugly stick. You know, two out of ten. I mean, it's not pretty. Why do we do this? Because there's a little Angela from the office inside all of us. Right? Remember Angela. I love being judged, she said. I think I stand up well to people's scrutiny. We all have this sense, everybody, religious, non-religious, all of us, we all have this sense that we can improve, that we want to be affirmed, told if we're on the right track or on the wrong track. And how do we find trustworthy perspective without also hearing the times when we're off the right track? Okay, so if you're new to church, there's a guy named Paul who uh, writes like... A third of the New Testament. And Paul is a church planter. He's one of the first followers of Jesus. He goes all over the world, plants these churches in places where Christianity doesn't exist yet. It didn't exist anywhere. Uh, He plants these churches. And then he goes to another city, another country, and plants other churches. And he writes letters back to these churches that he's planted. Um, And there's two kinds of letters that Paul writes. The first one is, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open to to the riches of the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Those are letters you love reading. Your heart swells when you read them. The second kind of letter that Paul writes is, I am begging you in all that is holy. I am begging you sick little freaks to stop doing what you're doing or I'm going to come get you. (laughs) This, The letter I want to show you today is the second kind of letter. So Paul plants his church in Corinth, and it's a dumpster fire. Uh, and it had a lot of reasons to be a dumpster fire, because Corinth is where Aphrodite's worship. worshipped. So Aphrodite is the goddess of sex and love, and there's a thousand temple prostitutes that she's worshipped by. And it's hard for people to follow Jesus, especially with Jesus' kind of radical call to what we do with our body, in Corinth. Because of Aphrodite, right there. And uh, Paul writes this letter back to them. Because one of, the pers- one of the people in the church had started sleeping with his stepmom. And the church was like, hey, look, we, we found grace, right? And Paul's like, no, you did not find grace. And he, uh, he, he writes him, and he's like, what? You guys are such fools. Even the world knows this is done. Even people on the outside know this is done. Why would you do this? This is a way that leads to death and hell and, and, and all kinds of consequences. And then at the end of this, he says, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, listen, I'm talking to the church. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? In fact, he doesn't write anything about the stepmom. Because the stepmom's not a part of the Christian faith. Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. And he's not saying this just to be a jerk. He says so that that person, his soul might be restored. So he might see there are consequences to these kind of things. Now here's what I want you to see. What business is it of mine to judge the church or judge the world? That's in your Bible. And I would say American Christianity has reversed this. We are known by judging the world relentlessly and just tolerating whatever goes on inside. And discipleship, we don't do that. Disciples of Jesus, we take the call of Jesus seriously on each other's life. Instead of judging the world and lowering the bar for what it means to follow Jesus, we accept Jesus' high calling on our life. And we let God handle it. And the world is confused, and that confusion has creeped into the way we think about following Jesus. Because we live in a society based on a lot of like bad philosophy that's not going to last, you know, another hundred years. But we live in a society that says no one has the right to say that anything or anyone else is wrong. It's ironic because the people who like champion and the way this plays out would be tolerance, which by the way is a Christian kind of it came from the roots of Christianity. And tolerance is fine, it's not love. But I have found in in secularism that champions of tolerance tend to become the most intolerant people of all. And the truth is judging, it's as much a part of human nature as worrying is. So Jesus says do not judge. But he does not mean no moral discernment. Jesus judged people all the time, and he encouraged his disciples to do the same. When we say, you know, don't judge me, I think of that great theological movie, The Princess Bride. You keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. Because it doesn't mean to help not tell other people moral evaluations. Jesus is not making a blanket statement on not judging completely, he's showing us how to judge correctly. So because we live in a world that, that uh, the preeminent value is tolerance, we often just don't say anything. Let me give you a couple examples. Dr. Stephen a- Anderson is a professor of philosophy in Ontario, Canada. Uh, he's a professor of philosophy and ethics, and he starts teaching freshman ethics every year, about five or six years ago. He know, what, he, what he does is he tries to find something that everyone can agree is wrong. For 18 and 19 year olds, everyone can agree is wrong, and um, he does this every year. But something changed about five or six years ago. He started with a story of uh, uh, a, a woman named Bibi Aisha. Aisha is an Afghanistan teenager who was forced into an abusive marriage. She was forced to like uh, sleep in the uh, with the animals, and when she escaped that marriage, um, her Her husband was a part of the Taliban, and they disfigured her face as punishment, like cut off nose and ears and those kind of things. And she eventually gets to an American hospital, and Dr. Steven Anderson showed her picture of what had happened to her, expecting that he could find a baseline for everybody to be able to say, that's wrong, and then figure out, well, how did you come to that moral reasoning? But what happened was, these 18 and 9-year-olds... Didn't weren't repulsed? They were confused. They spoke nervously. They were afraid to make any moral judgment at all. They were unwilling to, especially because it was from a different culture. They're like, you know, that's not how we do it here. We don't like that here, but uh, it's wrong to judge other cultures. And Dr. Stephen Anderson's like, well, how can kids who grow up so enmeshed in like the rights of minority, which is right minority rights, which is a good thing, how can they having grown up with that? Not, leave, not be able to see this. There's a blatant, flagrant violation of those things. And then he said at the end of the conversation and the end of that semester, he realized for many of them, this is what he said. The overriding message, message is never judge, never criticize, never take a position. Or how about this? There's a guy, a philosophy professor uh, named J.P. Moreland. Who uh, at the University of Vermont? He often he's a Christian and he often does outreach stuff to the students there. And so a few years ago, he was in a dorm with a bunch of guys and he was talking about Christianity. And uh, one of the seniors, one of the senior guys, was was not a Christian. He said, "Listen, that's great. That's true for you. That's not true for me. And you shouldn't force that on other people. No one should force their views on other people because you know everything's relative." And so J.P. Moreland said, okay, thank you for your feedback. I I have to go. And as he walked out of the dorm room, he unplugged the student's stereo and just took it with him. And the guy was like, what are you you doing? And Moreland was like, you're not going to force on me your personal view that stealing stereos is wrong, are you? And the guy was like, yeah, I am going to force that view on you. And he went on to say, like, listen, what you're saying is, is it's, got, it's a philosophy. It's a bad philosophy. It's called moral relativism and it's never universally applied. Like, you know, you people say, don't force your, you know, ethics, sexual ethics on me. You do you, I'll do me. Don't force your ethics on me when it comes to stuff like cheating on exams. But people become moral absolutists in a hurry when someone violates their rights or steals their things. That is... People are selective moral relativists. And actually a few weeks later, that student became a follower of Jesus because he recognized his, the connection to things he cared a lot about, like human rights and Jesus of Nazareth. And so J.P. Moreland likes to go around telling churches, you should start a great new evangelistic ministry called Stealing Stereos for Jesus. Now, listen, I've been doing this long enough to know. And I also know my own life. Whenever I'm gonna get a word of correction, I don't like it. I And whenever you're gonna get a a word of correction, whenever someone needs to speak something hard into your own life, if you're lucky enough to get it, you're not gonna want it. And the temptation is gonna be to reach for a bad version of Jesus' words without considering the rest of his words. Hey, do not judge. But those who use Jesus' words to say, don't call me to live differently, don't know much about Jesus. Because He regularly did that. He constantly called people out for bad theology, poor attitudes, unkind behaviors, selfish agendas, and immoral actions. Jesus, in the very sermon he preaches this, the Sermon on the Mount, he calls out the Pharisees for their shallow righteousness. He calls out religious people who like to do stuff for show. Everybody look at me how great of a prayer I am, how great of a giver I am. He calls out the existence of false prophets. Jesus talks about that stuff. He talks about sin a lot. He was anti-sin because he knew what it was, and he was not slow to name it, expose it, and call people to turning from, to call people from turning for it. And what people today would call judging, Jesus would call the practice of warning people about the consequences of disobedience to God. Because it is never right to ignore wrong. Listen, I'm a preacher, this is a church, you're supposed to hear stuff like this. Here's the danger. If you grew up in church especially, It's easy to think sin is like this abstract thing, missing the mark, you know, I got church wrong or, you know, I skipped small group or something like that. Listen, sin always causes harm. And as someone who's had this job for 20-something years, I get invited into the consequence side of the equation. When I get invited into people's lives, often it's because sin has done its work. And it's not the work; of, it's not stuff anybody puts on Facebook. The consequent side of things, real sin causes real harm, and that looks like divorce papers, and rehab, and arrest warrants, and every other weekend visits. Sin causes harm, and Jesus says it's never right to ignore it. But also, start with your own sin. But if we don't do this, here's what Jesus knows. Where moral discernment is prohibited, pseudo-community is practiced. Let me say that again as clearly as possible. Where we don't do this, there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of emptiness. There's a lot of shallow, not real community. And what a lot of people these days think is judgmental, I think Jesus might call risky love. So here's the problem, just as clearly as I can say it. In the Bible, belt, this is almost impossible. I've seen this my entire life in hundreds of different churches, hundreds of different examples. Let's say someone does this well. A church, a Christian, goes to another Christian and says, Hey, I just want you to know I don't think the path that you're on is going to lead you to a, a life that's full of joy. I think there's going to be bad consequences for you. What often happens, especially in the Bible Belt, when somebody tries to have a risky, love, honest conversation, is that person picks up their things and walks down the street to another church. And they're like, you should hear how judgmental those people are there. I've seen that happen a whole lot. Even though, you know, if you got baptized, you signed up to allow Jesus to speak into your life. To be pruned and shaped and challenged and changed. It involves submitting yourself to the community around you. Not because it's perfect. Because the deep awareness that we're all not perfect. And we may actually not be able to see ourselves clearly all the time. And by the way, this is not for everybody to speak in your life. It's the people you've invited into your life, your group, the smallest group of Christians that you're a part of, the people who know you really, and you know them. And these are people that have dealt with their own sin. It's for specific people to be able to speak into your life, life and joy and truth. And part of judging the cost of discipleship is judging whether or not it's worth. this is worth it for you. It's awkward, it's embarrassing, it's painful. We will never want it at the time. But it is the only way I know of through the Spirit of God to become the men and women Jesus is calling us to be. I mean, imagine, imagine going to AA and getting mad when somebody tells you, one day at a time. Imagine going to AA and when somebody says a hard word to you to help you, encourage you to quit drinking. You leave. You leave and go somewhere else. It's like this is what we signed up for. This is who we are. This is so it's so thorough in the New Testament. It's hard to figure out how we got here except for just consumerism. We're used to getting what we want. Here's the what the New Testament says it. Like Paul in Galatians 6 says, "Dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by some sin, You who are godly. Pay attention to how important it is. It's people who have dealt with their own stuff and they love the Lord. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Or what about this? The brother of Jesus, James, says this. Anyone who brings a sinner back from the wrong way will save that sinner's soul from death and will cause many sins to be forgiven. Jesus doesn't want us to just seek moral discernment. He wants us to speak moral discernment. Because it is wrong to ignore wrong. But there is a right way to confront wrong. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, the hypocrite is the person who does the right thing for the wrong reason. And the religious leaders of the day, they were not judging in order to correct. They were judging in order to condemn. And I can't say this strongly enough. If you have not dealt, if there's any self-righteousness in you, you don't need to do this. We, we often, what religious people do, and by the way, I get reacting to this. I don't want to be a part of this at all. What religious people often do is they go and correct someone, uh, someone else, not because they're trying to help them grow in the Lord, but because they're trying to show what pecking order they are in, you know, the kingdom of God or whatever. Jesus, that is not what Jesus is talking about. Spiritually prideful people call out sin and people not for their restoration but in order to win some kind of competition. And honestly, it's why I'm nervous about preaching this sermon. Because on some level, I feel like I'm like, release the Kraken to the church. (laughs) If that's you, you don't need to do this. If you're judging someone in order to establish a pecking order with God, well, you know what it's like? It's like that story Jesus tells about a Pharisee and then a sinner, a tax collector, who goes to the temple to pray to God. And the Pharisee looks over and he sees the tax collector and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not that guy. I thank you that I am not like that. I'm so moral and holy and upstanding. And the tax collector just prays, God have mercy on me, a uh, what? Sinner. And Jesus says, you know what? The Pharisee, the religious person, went home unjustified. His prayers weren't heard. But the tax collector, his prayers were. I've often wondered, do you think that Pharisee knew he went home unjustified? God has not appointed anybody in this church to be referees looking for the fouls to call. Judgment has no place in any, when anything less than healing and restoration is not the goal. So Jesus is not saying don't ever judge. He's saying we should never judge in a way that writes people off or condemns. Jesus is going to judge how we judge. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, every word we speak, we will be held accountable for. I think especially these kinds of words. You know, if you're going to judge, if Jesus is going to judge how we judge, maybe we should pay attention to how Jesus, you know, judged. Because there's this one time in the Gospel of John where... Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees interrupt him, and they bring in a woman who had just recently been caught in adultery. Like, just freshly caught. So probably not clothed. And they bring her into public. They're trying to shame her. And they're trying to trap Jesus. Hey, Moses says this woman should be killed. She's obviously broken the law. Um, What do you say, Jesus? It would be a great day for the Pharisees if they could trap Jesus and kill this woman. And so Jesus does, in practice, what He's telling us to do in theory. He says to them, Boy, you've got a point. Adultery sure is bad. Um, The first one of you, who hasn't sinned, pick up your rock. Go ahead and throw it at her. In other words, how's that beam in your eye, fellas? You're wanting to help this woman? Take the log out of your own eye. And then you might actually be helpful. And then he looks at the woman and says, Where are the people who are wanting to condemn you? She's like, surprisingly, they're gone. And the one person who could have thrown a stone doesn't. There is a right What Jesus could call out sin and yet was often called a friend of sinner's. There is a right way to confront wrong, and it is the way of Jesus. So step one, like we talked about last week, judge yourself more than anyone else. That beam in your eye, there's a reason Jesus starts with this order. I have noticed, and I, see if this rings true to you, I have noticed, I have amazing insight into seeing the stupid stuff you're doing. It's a real gift. <laughs> but when it comes to my own flaws... I'm not, my vision's not that clear. And it is this log problem that it's included, made many people on the outside of church conclude that Christians have a love problem. Right judging by Christians starts with Christians, both personally and as a community. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is the conviction of sin. So welcome that ministry in your life and recognize that. It may come through brothers and sisters around you. Again, not everyone, But for the people that know you and you know. That know you well. That you know them well. People that you know they've dealt with the logs in their own eyes. Welcome that. So I wouldn't have preached this sermon ten years ago. Uh, Ten years ago, I was uh, doing some stuff that was bad. And if you're in my D group, I talk about that. Some of y'all know what it is. And at one point, my best friend, Bub, who's been my best friend my entire life, he's a senior pastor at First Baptist Branson. We grew up homeschooled together. I just love, this one of my favorite people ever. And at one point, Bub is in Abilene, and we're hanging out talking, and I tell him about this stuff that I'm doing, just in passing. It's unjustifiable, and yet I have justified. Maybe you can relate to that. And Bub says, hold on, wait, wait a second. Go back to that. Tell me that. And he thinks about it for a while. And then after hours hours pass, he says, John, I just want you to know everything you care about in life. Your family, your job, everything you care about. You're going to lose if you keep doing this and you know how i received that i hated bub i mean i was so mad it's like what an arrogant jerk how what how dare he and after a while i started realizing bub could see what i couldn't see he was He he was not saying this to hurt me. He was saying this to help heal me. And by the way, ten years later, looking back at it now, it is by the grace of God that conversation happened. I was headed on a path that led to death and hell, and he could see it, and he cared enough about it to say it. May you be so lucky... May you have somebody who cares enough about you to tell you what you don't want to hear. And may God's grace give you pause before you lash out. And may God's grace give you enough humility that you can listen. So, do you have that? Would you even be open to that? Not for everybody, but for somebody. To tell you the truth. Do you remember what Jesus actually says? He says, at the end of this, don't throw your pearls to pigs. Some of you read that verse and you're like, that's the one thing I don't struggle with, Jesus. <laughs> you know what Jesus is actually saying? He's talking about this. He's talking about when you give godly correction to someone. You know what he's saying? It's valuable. This is worth something. And he's not calling people pigs. He's saying pigs don't have any use for pearls. This is a valuable thing that you're giving someone. If you do the work. Which it hurt Bob in that moment to do this. It's not like he took pleasure in it, which is why I could hear it. If you do the work, if you've dealt with the beam in your own eye, so that you can see what's in your brother or sister's eye, if you're doing this to help restore them and not to help condemn them or figure out where you're at in the love of God, this is valuable. It may be one of the most valuable things on earth. Don't just throw it away. So do you have someone in your life who will give you a pearl? Would you do this for someone else? And finally, if we're going to be a church that makes disciples and does this well, which involves this, we've got to extend mercy more than anything else. Jesus never stopped denouncing sin, but He would never deny mercy to a sinner. He did not come to make people pay for their sins. He came to let them know He was going to pay for their sins. And in the kingdom of God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus is not forbidding the exercise of judging in the kingdom community, but He's reminding us in the kingdom of God... Just because you don't have that sin, just because you don't have that addiction, just because you don't struggle with that. We are all, there is, I don't know of another place in the world that you can find equality other than this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin for all of us is death. So how does that change the way we interact with one another? Well, we treat our brothers and sisters with the same kind of grace we want from our father. And we have a Father like that. You have never, in other words, you have never met a sinner who needs more mercy than you. And you have never met a sin that is a match for the grace of God. And that should change how we judge everything. Jesus is not asking for anybody to close their eyes and ignore sin. He's inviting us into a kind of life where we remove the beam from our eyes and replace it with the cross. The cross is the greatest intervention in history. Jesus lived a perfect life because God is so against sin. And He died for us because God is so for people. And that's what this means. We can have these hard conversations with each other because the judge took our judgment on himself. Saints burn through grace like jet fuel. And the way he judges changes the way we look at everyone, starting with ourselves. So that's the value of pearls. May you be so lucky as to have that in your life.